Captain Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update here on a Friday morning Erev Shabbos. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Uh, good morning. Nice to speak with you. Your reaction to the Brexit vote, 52-48 to 48 in Great Britain, to leave the European Union, and subsequently the resignation of Prime Minister David Cameron. So I think we don't know what the real implications are. This is not going to be an immediate step, I believe. I think this is a process that could take years for them to disengage. Even Boris Johnson, who was the leading Brexit advocate, British exit advocate, uh, said that there's no need to rush now. You, you know, we'll have time to do it in an orderly way. The banks obviously are going to react because they're unsure where the pound will be, which took a real beating uh, immediately. And because all the polls were wrong, it sounds like to Israel, uh, predicting that uh, <laughs> it would go true. down to defeat when, uh, in fact, the margin was was uh, surprising in, in many places. The... Um, you know, Cameron's resignation, he was uh, a friend of Israel. Uh, Boris Johnson, I think, is, is known as a, a supportive, and he's a contender, a lead contender, but right. I think Michael Gove would be, who's also very uh, supportive. The implications for the EU, maybe they, they will stop pursuing the French initiative for a while and start focusing on their internal problems and the functioning of the, of the body, especially when they meet uh, and we're supposed to they, they did meet this week to endorse the foreign ministers uh, of the EU to endorse the French initiative and call for a summit before the end of the year and to move in the direction of, of more imposition than, uh, than discussion and certainly trying to impose some sort of a process in a week when Abbas, you know, shunned the meeting with uh, David Rivlin, the president of Israel, and made libelous statements, etc. So this certainly is not going to enhance stability. I'm sure Mr. Putin is, is happy with the result, and there will be others uh, who will look at it on a political level one way, but maybe on an economic level uh, the disruptions could be could be very difficult, the falling of price of oil again, other implications for international trade. The, the uh, Chinese will have to get involved if the dollar gets too strong, and for American... Uh, uh, the, the dollar will now be so strong, so American exports get hit. People don't think about all these ramifications. And I'm not an economist. I don't know and don't pretend to know uh, more than I do on this. But I certainly can see the complications that can emerge from it. So there are countries and world leaders observing all this who are gleefully observing what they consider to be increased European instability. Certainly, and, and uh, you know, the, the EU has been challenging uh, Mr. Putin, for instance, over Ukraine, over other issues, and there were sanctions are coming up again. I think the EU will not have as much of an appetite to engage in those kind of bold moves when they don't know what the future is, because there will be similar measures now introduced in many countries. And you saw the rise of the right-wing parties, the anti-immigration move, the, the, the sentiment on many grounds, uh, against crime, against the economic conditions, uh, which could, you know, see. And if if you remember, I've told for many years that I thought EU, the Europe was moving on two plates at one time, one right. towards unity and one towards disunity. Right. And I said it maybe eight, ten years ago, 
because you saw all the revisionist and, and the, the uh, irredentist movements that have emerged. So this is not something sudden. This is a process, and the, the resentment uh, fueled by the older people, whereas younger people really voted very heavily in favor of staying in the EU. Uh, did it make you cringe, as it did I, when the Prime Minister of Great Britain uh, spoke directly, or in some cases indirectly, to the Jewish community about how it would be to Israel's advantage if they stayed in the EU? Did it make you uncomfortable that he was using Israel and the Jewish people essentially as a, as a, uh, as a prop in the campaign to stay with the EU? Well, I don't like when uh, targeted uh, groups, period. But in this case, you know, when the margins were so thin that even the Jewish community in Britain, which is denominous in, in its overall, uh, you know, the numbers in, in terms of the total population, and, you know, the Muslim population had actually organized in many sectors uh, to, to promote staying in the, um, in the EU, and I think the Jewish community, by and large, supported that position. But there were ads taken out by a group from Israel, you know, favoring uh, exit, and I think that part his comment was a reaction to those ads and those statements, uh, you know, that they were fueled in part by resentment at Britain's you know, demands on Israel and uh, policies uh, regarding the Shtachim, the territories, etc. So I, wasn't, I didn't think what he did was offensive. I think he targeted every segment that he could in order to, to win even uh, a few votes that they thought was going to spell the difference. You saw the Prime Minister this past week. Did he express privately or even publicly, maybe I missed it, uh, what he would have preferred? And now that uh, this vote has taken place, and I know it was just a short time ago that the results have been discovered uh, or reported, but now that the results are in, has he offered any reaction yet? I spent quite a bit of time with him, and we did not really get into the Brexit. We talked about the potential implications in terms of instability and economic uh, uh, implications generally and political implications, but no, he did not express a view one way or the other. Um, and uh, as you know, he had a good relationship with uh, Cameron, right. so I think that that you know is, is is does not make them happy. Did Israel sort of uh, rely on Great Britain to do its bidding in the EU? to utilize its influence when, you know, different initiatives and proposals came up? At times, they, they you know, they look to, to many parties in Europe. Uh, right now, it's the East Europeans who are more often the front lines of Bulgaria, Romania. It used to be Czech Republic. Now maybe it'll come back a little bit. Uh, Poland, for a long time, was very staunchly pro-Israel. The new government is less so. Uh, so there, there are different times, and, and because many decisions in the EU require unanimity by being able to break off two or three countries, sometimes even one or two countries, can make a huge difference. And um, Britain has at times stood up to, to the issue. But you remember, much of what we've seen, BDS, other things, you know, really in Europe certainly found their beginnings there. The, the shelving, the other campaigns um, began in Britain. Right. And what I called the poisoning of the elites ten years ago, and saying that Britain was the model for the United States, not France, where it's bottom up but top down, meaning starting amongst the elites and working its way down. And the um, you know the the uh, Irish government has has not been pro-Israel, the opposite, and not supportive at all. So at times the government of Britain has been a, a 
Stone Chowai. I think sometimes they join with Merkel to help support it, uh, uh, support Israel in some of the votes in the EU. But I don't know that it was a consistent, unique role that one could ascribe to them. Well, we now see uh, Brexit-like, and, and, and some people have already come up with some great uh, <laughs> nicknames uh, for these different countries. Will we see Brexit-like campaigns in uh, France, in Germany, Spain, Italy, etc.? Absolutely. Spain, I think, votes in a few weeks, but you're going to see a move by by the uh, right-wing parties, especially, who will stand to gain from this move because it, 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 it'll find similar expressions in many countries. I don't know if the margins are there to win, but I think also it puts in stark relief the initiative of which we have been pushing about the Mediterranean initiative that in neither is the Middle East a stable region, and now we see that the, the Europe, Europe itself is going through the, this tumultuous period right. that creating an alternative not to the EU, but as uh, uh, um, relationships that can help stabilize and, and soften some of the economic blows by all the countries uh, around the Mediterranean, with Israel as the hub, reaching from Egypt to Morocco to Spain, Greece, Israel, uh, Sicily, uh, Cyprus, um, Malta, many others, Bulgaria, that have expressed interest and talked to us about coming into it. So that may become a, a more attractive uh, idea and initiative than uh, than it was. And was the vote in Great Britain a referendum on immigration and immigration policy? And and if yes, will certain countries benefit from the fact, uh, th- those who are looking to leave the EU, benefit from the fact that this vote went the way it did? One has to certainly uh, ascribe the outcome and uh, to fear about the immigration, the loss of jobs. The, I mean, there are other factors. People didn't want to see all this money spent on, you know, a duplicate parliament, that they have their own parliament, and then they had to pay for the people in the European parliament. There were many things that, that went into it, but certainly I think the immigration issue uh, is loomed very large in this. So for what, in, I'm sorry. what the implications will be will be hard to tell, but there was a net immigration this year, I think, of, 200,000 or 300,000 to Britain, which is not, you know, a big area. Right. Well, my point is that uh, if in Great Britain it was a referendum to a degree on immigration and it went the way it did, some could already speculate that in other countries, like France, for instance, uh, it, it might even be more of a referendum on immigration. Yes, Marie Le Pen already started it. Right. I mean, so you, you, you're right. You're seeing already the signs of this. Um, it's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM Dial Broadcasting Live. The Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmnam.org, and on the NSN app. And one other point on this that I think is important to mention, um, and you know this better than anybody else because of your uh, dedication to history, it, this is cyclical. Right, I mean, if if you go through history, especially in the last few hundred years, the the unity and disunity politically of the European continent is just it just goes back and forth constantly, right? Oh, sure, it goes in cycles, and people will then see the implications. Uh, there could be another vote. There could be this is not necessarily binding. Uh, I've heard, according to some interpretations, it's clearly a decisive outcome, and the decision remains the decision. But the, um, there are ways around it. They can always have additional um, measures, uh, consideration. And also, we'll have to see if if, uh, if Scotland moves to pull out again. You remember the, the vote to, to break up Great Britain, too. So there are going to be after waves and shock waves. 
Um, my hope is that, that this will at least uh, cause some rethinking, and especially vis-a-vis the Middle East, where we're coming to the U.N. session, and the European Union was expected to take the lead in some actions. The French initiative uh, continuing, um, and the, uh, the the message that President Rivlin actually gave to the EU Parliament about respecting Israel's considerations, even if they're different uh, than theirs, and, and tells them that negotiations for negotiations' sake will only divide the, uh, and, and diminish the chance of peace e- even more. And also, we're seeing another initiative, by the way, which is very serious, as you know, um, uh, very focused on what happened at UNESCO and the, the yeah. tremendous change and, and damage that was done. Well, there's another meeting coming up of the World Heritage Committee of UNESCO, uh, July 10th to the 20th in, in Turkey. And there, they're going to take up additional holy places to designate. And uh, this is, you know, the PA is driving this. But if you remember the action that they took that, that renamed the Kotel, renamed many of the other uh, of our most sacred places, mm-hmm. uh, Al-Barak's Wall is, uh, is the new name for the Kotel, named for Mohammed's horse, and Kebar Rachel, and right. Marta all of them, including the Harabayat. Well, now there's information that they want to add many more sites, Christian sites, the old city of Hebron, Kasar um, al-Yahud, um, the Marsaba Monastery, I remember was another one of those places. And the, the, this body is the one that initially put Western Wall in, uh, in brackets to the Arab term Barak Plaza, and then eventually... The Jewish names, the traditional Judeo-Christian names, were removed altogether, and uh, th- th- that was done by the UNESCO Executive Board. Then, um, uh, that now will take up this uh, additional considerations, and I know people can be dismissive of right. it. And I, I was I just gonna, people. I was just gonna say to you that there are gonna be people rolling their eyes and saying, "What's the big deal about this?" Right. So when their grandchildren can't go to any of these places because they were designated during their grandparents' time as only Muslim holy places, I asked the French foreign minister what he's going to answer his grandchildren when they ask him why he abandoned 2,000 years of Christian tradition and history when their sacred text talks about uh, the Temple Mount, talks about the money changers, talks about all those issues, and you eradicated all of this. You just wiped off 3,000 years of Jewish history and 2,000 two, uh, 2, years, 3,800 years of Jewish history. And he, uh, you know, he looked at me and he said, well, it doesn't do it. And it was clear he hadn't read it. He didn't know what the implications of this were. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. You know, they had things, they attack the excavations uh, that are going on, you know, on Harabayat, the, the tunnels, the, your city of David, etc. At the same time when Israel brought together the, the Arab and Muslim parties to, to be able to uh, do construction in, and around the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and other places. Uh, so now they are inserting phrases accusing Israel as the occupying power and tells about extremist groups ready to storm Al-Aqsa and many false accusations. And this, this takes, uh, creates an historical record the, the countries that sit on the committee, by the way, are Angola, Burkina Faso, Croatia, Cuba, you know, great democracies, Kuwait, Lebanon, Peru, uh, South, uh, Tunisia, Turkey, Tanzania, I think South Korea, uh, Zimbabwe. So 
they're going to pass this, and everybody's going to say, well, so it's another uh, resolution. There are 50 draft resolutions. Only one is political. Guess which one? And <laughs> they, they talk about high-risk situations like Iraq and Kosovo and all those, and it's just a technical mention. So I hope that maybe the Europeans will, will take a look at this and say maybe God is sending them a message about where their priorities are and the need to, to reconsider what they've been doing. You know, we're going through such uh, a serious and tumultuous times, Nahum, that, that people are not focused. Uh, the, the Japanese this week came out with a defense study about the growth of ISIS in East Asia. The South Koreans, within a day, uh, warned of ISIS attacks against U.S. bases around the world and about their expanding role. They're, they're in three continents. They have armies in six countries beyond Iraq and Syria. And everybody's telling us, well, they're not significant. Sure, they have five, 6,000 guys in Libya. They've got thousands of guys in, in the Sinai. They have people all over, and their armies are expanding. They're growing. They're, they're you know, becoming a, a greater threat. And they only need small numbers to carry it out. And yet, what do they focus on? The Jewish heritage of Harabayat, the 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 demand that Israel consider more more um, concessions and, and with a partner that doesn't want to negotiate, and at the same time, Iran is is, is moving ahead on, on so many... Uh, it's just easier to get a consensus on the Israel issue. Well, that, that is <laughs> true, but convenience is not the answer in a time of such... No, of uh, course. And, and you mentioned ISIS, and, and, and that doesn't even include those who are influenced by ISIS, who, you know, proclaim their uh, allegiance to ISIS, but really have no official membership in ISIS. Uh, and who carry that, out that, attacks. Yeah, the Philippines now officially declared their association to terrorists there, but you have Boko Haram in Nigeria, right. you have in Afghanistan, in, in Kharasan province, in Yemen, in, uh, as I mentioned, Nigeria, Saudi Arabia, um, the IS there, they, they took credit for many attacks, and certainly in Egypt. And, uh, you know, these presences are growing, and they are an increasing um, Threat. The one counterbalance right now is that it looks like Israel and Egypt will, uh, Israel and Turkey will uh, move ahead this week on uh, on the agreement. Yeah, we'll do, hopefully get to that in a second or, or more than a second. Let me ask you about this Betsy Woodruff story. American aerospace giant Boeing isn't exactly publicizing the fact that it paid a lobbying firm to monitor the nuclear agreement that made its twenty five billion dollars sale to Tehran possible, or that Boeing has on its payroll a former top Clinton administration official who used this cloud to garner support in the corridors of powers for the Iran deal. Thomas Pickering, one of the country's most respected diplomats and a former ambassador to Israel and the U.N., has been quietly taking money from Boeing while vocally supporting the Iran nuclear deal. Does this, in fact, make you even more suspicious about how this deal came to fruition, or this is just politics happening the way it always happens? Well, maybe both. Uh, Pickering's role, uh, as he was a uh, a long-term employee of Boeing, uh, the question of how many people received funding. We know now the Plowshares Foundation, giving money to J Street and many other groups to, to, to lobby. Uh, I think that it, it, it is very disturbing. It's not just, can't be accepted as business as usual when we find out that uh, companies with vested interests were lobbying as if this was important for the American economy when it was right. important for their economy. <laughs> right. And, uh, and I will tell you, honestly, I don't think that this deal with Boeing is going to reach real fruition. You know, there are many deals signed that don't come all the way through. But Which means what? Iran, they never pay the money and they never get the delivery? No, because the banks are going to be reluctant to fund and to, to uh, underwrite this deal 
the, you know that I- Iran also signed a deal with, with uh, Airbus for a huge quantity of uh, uh, of planes, and they signed an, uh, another deal for regional uh, aircraft. And Boeing uh, wants this deal. They want to, everybody wants to get into the market, and right. there's a sort of loophole that the administration is using because. There was, if you remember, when the sanctions earlier uh, adjustments were made that included car parts and they said airplane parts because of safety. So under that guise, they were um, allowed. They, they're saying that this is is really, you know, if you sell enough parts of a Boeing aircraft, you got a plane. So uh, I, I, that this is certainly disturbing. The question of you know how many people were involved? Whether they knew about these deals? Did the administration make promises? And and uh, and and now, as you know, there's a real division in the government between the Treasury Department and State Department that became public, and again did not get complete. Got some coverage by some of the sources that tend to uh, expose these things, but there is a real uh, difference emerging. And when uh, Secretary Kerry is seen as advocating to the Europeans to to, per, to do business, and um, uh, he did this public uh, diplomacy campaign to get European governments and others uh, and businesses to re-engage with Iran. At the same time, now the Treasury Department went before Congress and said, it's not our policy, and we're not in favor of it, and we're not going to lift any of the sanctions. And the, uh, the, the Iran financial system is still a cesspool, and... And, and what one of the guys said is that anybody who listens to Kerry's advice is taking an enormous risk, and um, that the Treasury is running out of ways to tell it to them. Marco Rubio got a letter from the Treasury Department, uh, and Mark Kirk, by the way, that the uh, administration is committed to blocking Iran from the U.S. marketplace, and they, they promised um, that uh, promises that certainly go contrary to what I just said about the State Department's approach, and. Many people are are saying that uh, you know they're pointing to this uh, initiative by Kerry, which we discussed here many times, uh, as perhaps being misguided, and the this this blatant contradiction between two departments, and the fact that they're going on record on doing this, even in writing, and the the criticism at the same time this week, the um, there's a you know a foreign task force that um, deals with. Uh, money laundering and uh, activities of those kinds, you know, and they can, voted this week to continue to um, uh, blacklist Iran, the Financial Action Task Force, which is um, about 30 years old, that, that deals with money laundering and the financing of terrorism. It has 37 countries, and they were meeting in South Korea, and they decided not to change the status of Iran. And they're saying that they're still not trustworthy, and it's still high risk, and therefore... They're not changing it. Well, all of these are things that you know we have discussed and was were warned about by those who opposed the deal and about some of the implications. And I think people are, are saying, well, is there a duplicitousness to all of this? But you see it emerge <laughs> yeah. in blatant ways when the two major uh, departments of the government are giving contradictory um, uh, statements to the members of Congress. In, in your assessment, just back to the first part, in your assessment, th- does Boeing know that there's a good chance that this whole investment and effort on their part may go without any deal going through? Well, of course they do, and they invest all the time in this. But remember, you know, it's such a huge corporation, such a big company, and uh, they are lobbying all the time. They're lobbying foreign governments, and it doesn't get exposed very much, but 
should be much more exposed. So they take a risk on the Iran deal, and if they fail, they fail. It's no big deal. If they fail, they don't know. Right. They just build it into the next overhead right. of the... They have huge lobbying uh, uh, capacities, and uh, this is a $25 billion deal. So if you yeah. spend even $100 million on it, and it's successful, you, you'd still have a tremendous return. And, the, you know, Pickering is respected, uh, is respected in the diplomatic right. community. Hey, Mal- hey, Malcolm, this F-35 is one impressive-looking plane, huh? <laughs> so I asked the ambassador yesterday, yeah. who, who was there, uh, Tahian Negbi, the right. minister, and, you know, he was raving about, you know, the experience. And I said, but if it's a stealth plane, how did you see it? So <laughs> he said he saw wheels turning and he knew something that he could tell from the balloons. Um, but it is very impressive, and we should remember at a time when the president is challenging or is reported to have challenged Israel, the, the law, and why the implementation of the law that requires Israel's qualitative military edge to be maintained, and they are challenging the 26% of the aid and military aid that Israel gets that is allowed to be spent in Israel, which keeps their you know, defense industries alive and, and uh, redounds to the benefit of the United States in overwhelming ways, demonstrated in the F-35, where the wings are made by Israel aircraft industries, the helmets, which are super high-tech, uh, are made by Elbit, other parts contributed by Israel. Certainly the missile defense uh, technology, which became the subject this week of, of a lot of discussion, where the Congress, as you know, wanted to increase to $600 million, administration 140 or so, and the president threatened to veto the bill over that, which was unprecedented. Right. Uh, the... The House, after the president's threat, voted more than two to one uh, in support of the uh, increasing the up push. I think to call it of the amount for Israel on on uh, for, for the military uh, program, and then the president tried to juxtapose it between uh, aiding Israel's and and undermining America's uh, missile defense uh, program. And Congress is saying, look, we benefit so much from the technology Israel's developed. It's a joint Israel-U.S. And it benefits America's uh, uh, defense and security, and they use the Iron Dome and Sling technology, David Sling, et cetera, technologies. Um, and when you have Iran now advancing its missile tests and the development of its missile capacity, you have Hezbollah with over 100,000 missiles, you have Hamas with thousands and thousands of missiles, the need is that much greater, and much of this is to go into procurement, meaning additional... Uh, facilities, additional units to protect the northern border right. and to protect Israel generally, not just for R&D. Right, that... and Israel does contribute greatly to it, and he is quoted now in Panetta, the former Secretary of Defense, who argued with the President about the moral and, uh, uh, and legal obligation to Israel, a legal obligation meaning that it's the law of the land to maintain the QME, uh, qualitative military edge, and uh, uh, argued about what the benefit to the United States is, uh, and and substantiated what was reported in the Goldberg interview of some time ago. But coming from Panetta, who was there, and and his substantiation uh, added to the yeah. discussion this week greatly. Which leads to the next question, of course: Is of any, course. is anybody else in Israel's neighborhood going to get a hold of the F thirty five? Well, this is what really led to the president's expressions of frustration because the Saudi deal couldn't be culminated because they had to make sure that nothing was in it that would 
endanger Israel and then give them more advanced technology than what Israel had or Israel could counter, because in case those planes to Saudi Arabia would fall in the wrong hands. Uh, others will buy the F-35. The question is what what they will have. Israel is going to put its own avionics in it. The, uh, the planes will be delivered in December, I think, the first two, and then six or seven every year till they get to the, I think, 35 altogether that Israel bought. This is huge, multi-billion dollar deal for Israel. This is the, the next stage, and it's, it's an attack aircraft that has multiple uses, and it can't be detected, and given the skills demonstrated in the past by Israeli pilots, um, I think that they can put them to very good use fighting terrorists and fighting uh, potential dangers. All right, I've got to ask you two more things. First of all, on the Turkey thing, so um, uh, Turkey is willing to uh, advance its normalization, so to speak, with Israel without the lifting of the Gaza siege. Now, I don't believe, of course, there is a Gaza siege, but this is how it was reported, so I'm saying it that way. Um, and you, of course, are, are indicating this is a good sign, that you, you want to see Israel and Turkey getting along as best as possible, right? Well, Turkey and Israel were allies. Unfortunately, Turkey is led by somebody who has uh, very questionable uh, policies, and and, uh, I've met with him now several times on this, and uh, I think it is important to advance it. You know, the people demonstrated that their commitment continued because they increased to, you know, trade with Israel all during this bad period has gone up since the Mavi Mamara uh, incident. And what the conditions that Turkey set was, one, I mean, they were making some other outlandish demands. One was the uh, uh, opening of a non-existent siege. And so now all the aid from Turkey will go unloaded from Ashdod, be taken to, to Israel. They're going to allow them to build a hospital, and with Germany, an electric plant and some other things. They, Turkey wanted to build a big island and um, you know where everything would go through as an addition to Gaza. Uh, that is not part of the deal. The uh, so so there is Israel pays compensation to some of the Mamarva Mamara uh, people who were hurt or killed, and did issue an apology. So those were the three um, major issues. And Turkey on its side had to get rid of the Hamas uh, military people who were operating and using Turkey as a base for their uh, operations coordinations against Israel and elsewhere. So they made that concession, as you know that. He has reacted to when the terrorist attack involving Israelis. Uh, right. uh, President Erdogan went out of his way. I have to say that when you, we've had in-depth discussions with him, and so the last one where he tried to convince me Hamas is a resistance organization, a terrorist organization, right. and many other things that we'll have to re- wait for my book uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> later on. <laughs> That's a good chapter. That's a really good chapter. <laughs> well, it has many. It has many. Um, in and outs in it, I could say that. Yeah, I mean, back and forth. and uh, Talk about cyclical, right? I mean, <laughs> that is one cyclical chapter. Um, and finally, uh, candidate Herzog, and help me understand this, before the election, meets with the head of the PA and promises, I guess, or, or arranges for some type of concession on pre-67 borders. Is that an accurate way of portraying what happened? Apparently, I, I didn't meet with him, but it was before the story broke, so I couldn't ask him specifically about it. Um, but, you know, this is not unusual in Israel where everybody, uh, you know, is off on their own in, in opposition, and uh, even members of their own parties uh, reach out, as, as in Riblin's case, although that was with the permission of the prime minister to uh, meet with Abbas. The, uh, I, I find much more troubling the language 
that people in Israel being used that Abbas simply quoted in his comments right. that Israel's a fascist state. And I, I told him, when you use words like that, and including some of the people who used it, uh, you know, we pay the price, too, for it. And you will pay the price, because they don't need to make any more statements. All they have to say is, look what the Israeli leaders are saying. Yep. If officials of Israel can use a word like fascist and, and other things, well, they said it's fascistic, it's this, it's that. And I told them there's no excuse. There are plenty yep. of other ways you can describe or express your frustration with the political situation, and there is, indeed, yep. frustration about the political situation and things that some of which I found surprising and, and some of which not. Yeah, the BB bashing, huh? Who would have expected this? Right. And then you know, Saudi Arabia talks about changing the Arab initiative in order to make it easier for Israel. We see other statements by Arab countries, and then the criticism, the super-criticism, hyper-criticism, comes from, from within. And I, you know, th- there may be individuals or people who, who behave in, in extremist ways, and you can address that. But to, to label the, the country or talk about fascistic tendencies, and yeah. uh, these are very dangerous and, and uh, extreme comments. Uh, criticism is legitimate and expressed, but has to be expressed in the right way, and that includes people here, includes people uh, there. And when you have the debates that went on this week, you know, here, w- w- with the criticisms and uh, with much at stake in terms of the military and other aid that, that goes to Israel, the last thing we need is to have this kind of... Uh, of clashes, you know, you see in, in Syria today the Iranians, the Syrians, Hezbollah, Russians uh, in conflict with uh, uh, with one another. We see the the, the situation there deteriorating, maybe uh, moving into uh, a new phase, perhaps with Iran and Russia facing off over what the future will be, what will happen to Assad, many um, po- possible uh, ramifications and and different uh, alternative outcomes. That, that could happen. And at least the, the last thing we need is that kind of divisiveness within Israeli society. We're not going to do away with the parties and not dealing with saying everybody has to be <coughs> in, uh, in lockstep, but certainly they have to be careful and, and think about the implications uh, of the words. You know that, that Egyptians, Egyptian TV, started running pieces against the, the Palestinians about Gaza, about, you know, uh, in this uh, television series, and have moved against the textbooks. Uh, to, uh, including the references to the peace with Israel. And you hear much more complimentary things about Israel talking with the Arab leaders than sometimes when you meet with Israelis. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. I thank you. We will, uh, I assume, are reconvening next week, right? Why uh, not? God willing, Mashiach isn't here and uh, all goes well. No, I'm just yeah. thinking Fourth of July weekend, but as far as I know, I'm here and uh, you're here and we'll continue this conversation. Thanks so much. Have a wonderful uh, Shabbos. But make sure the listeners are here. Yeah, the that, listeners better that be That makes here. a difference. Ah, come on, you know they'd never miss it. Candlelighting <laughs> time at 8-11 on this Arab Shabbos Parshas Baal